The scripture today, we have two scriptures. The first one is from Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, and eight, uh, excuse me, 10 through 11 from the voice version. It says, Yet it was our suffering he carried, our pain and distress, our sick to the soulness. We just figured that God had rejected him, that God was the reason he hurt so badly. But he was hurt because of us. He suffered so. Our wrongdoing wounded and crushed him. He endured the breaking that made us whole. The injuries he suffered became our healing. We all have wandered off like shepherdless sheep, scattered by our aimless striving and endless pursuits. The eternal one laid on him, the silent sufferer, the sins of us all. It is hard to understand why God would crush his innocent servant, but it is in his suffering for sin that God deals decisively with sin and its harmful effects. Yet the eternal one planned to crush him all along to bring him to grief, this innocent servant of God, when he puts his life in sin's dark place at the pit, in the pit of wrongdoing. The servant of God will see his children and have his days prolonged. For his servant's hand, the eternal's deepest desire will come to pass and flourish. As a result of the trials and troubles that rack his soul, God's servant will see light and be content because he knows, really understand what it's about. As God says, my just servant will justify countless others by taking on their punishment and bearing it away. And Romans 3, 23 through 26 from the New Revised Standard Version says, Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This is going to be fun and not controversial at all. I uh, joked with the leadership team, if there's any pushback on this, just don't let me know until I get back from my honeymoon. <laughs> Seriously, in all seriousness, absolutely, you may push back. It's okay. That's what we're, that's what we're about here at Imago. You don't have to see things the way I see them. And um, we can all uh, agree that God loves us, and if that's what we've got, that's what we've got. So this morning we're going to talk about penal substitutionary atonement. And I'm just going to read the definition straight from Wikipedia, that old scholarly website, the one that my professors would never let me use to cite papers with. The penal substitution theory teaches that Jesus suffered the penalty due by God the Father's wrath for humanity's sins. Penal substitution derives from the idea that divine forgiveness must satisfy divine justice. That is, that God is not willing or able to simply forgive sin without first requiring a satisfaction for it. It states that God gave himself in the person of his son Jesus Christ to suffer the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for our sin. So at the very heart of penal substitutionary atonement, and here on after I will say PSA for short, because that is a lot to say, the foundation for PSA is based on the wrath of God. 
that God is angry with us for our sins, that our iniquities have caused him to turn his face against us. Now, the Greek word for wrath means exactly what you think it would mean, like outpouring, overflow, excess, fury, wrath, arrogance. It's different than anger, right? When I was in high school, I uh, had gone out one night with my boyfriend, and I had a strict, like, I think it was an 11 o'clock curfew. No, it was a 10.30 curfew, I'm sorry. A 10.30 curfew. And so I didn't get home at 10.30. I'm not going to talk about what happened, but... Anyway, I didn't get home at 10.30, so I came home like a little after 11, but my, I was praying my parents would be asleep, right? And we lived in this Spanish-style home that had like double doors on the front entrance, and so I'm just I'm walking up the steps to the double doors, and I'm creaking the doorknob, and I step one step in my house, and my mother is standing right there. My mother is about the same height as me, and she was in my face like this. And I was like, Ooh. She was like, Melinda Diane? What? That's my middle name. Melinda Diane? Why are you home 40 minutes late? Uh, 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 uh. Well, I couldn't tell her. I don't know. We lost track of time. So anyway, that was wrath. That was wrath. That was not anger. I got in a lot of trouble for that. You probably have experienced some of those moments too with your parents or with your children. <laughs> Dear Lord. Anyway, the imagery of wrath is all over the Hebrew Scriptures. We cannot avoid that because it's there. And to try to explain it away um, by some voodoo or whatever, it just doesn't work. We have to think about it. We have to address it. But this morning I would like for us to think a little bit more deeply and broadly about wrath of God. So in Lamentations 2, for example, we read that Jeremiah is weeping and he is sick to his stomach. Why? Because he sees the bodies of elderly and children and swords are everywhere. They're just out in the streets is what the Bible says. He describes mothers being so desperate to eat that they are boiling their children. Yeah, that says that. Jeremiah tells us that God, God has done this because of God's wrath over their sins. This is a wrathful God toward not only the Israelites, but toward the Israelites' enemies. This is a God whose anger seems at times just out of control and even unjustified and just tyrannical and just very vengeful. And we're also taught that God cannot look on our sins because God is holy. Has anybody even heard, have heard that from a preacher or whatever? You know, God can't look on you when you're sinning because God is holy and God can't look on sin, right? Well, and, and even after we are saved or even after we have a conversion experience, God's still mad at us when we sin and he can't look at us. He turns his face away. There's even some uh, hymns that use that language of how deep the Father's love for us, the Father turns his face away. I was curious this week as I was uh, doing the uh, studying for this uh, I, I thought about a time when I was in high school and I was singing special music one Sunday morning. Some of you probably don't know what that means. But you know, you'd have one person to sing like a special music on Sunday mornings. Good old days, not. Anyway, and so I sang a song that morning called, Have You Put a Tear in His Eye? Y'all, oh my. 
Have you put a tear in his eye? Notice my draw's getting a little bit stronger. I hope you realize that, because this was in Mississippi at the time. Was it you who made our Lord cry? When you said no, did you feel a teardrop touch your soul? Have you put a tear in his eye? Y'all, the whole house was weeping, which is what I wanted. That's what I was going for. I want to make you cry. Looking back on it, I think that all that really does is bring us shame. I've had a lot of conversations with our worship leaders about shame in our music, and it's there, right? Right? There's this shame. There's some of the some of that feelings of shame that it can induce, and I'm so happy that our praise, our worship team leaders, they're so. Um, they're so uh, focused on and interested in making sure that nothing that ever gets sang in this worship time would make you feel shame in any way. Because we just don't do that here. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But that shame that comes along with all of that, with the music we've heard, with the teachings that we've heard, it's really huge for us. It's really there down deep in, in ways that we don't even realize, that we don't even check. I remember I told you uh, several months ago about a preacher when I was a youth in the 80s that preached a sermon about the heavenly VCR. You know, he preached that one day we're going to stand before God in heaven and God's going to have this heavenly VCR that's going to roll back all the bad things that we did on earth for all everybody to see. Yeah, that was terrifying when you're 15 years old. That's terrifying when you're 49. Dear heavens, some of y'all people don't need to see my stuff, and I don't want to see yours. But where do we get this thought? Where does that come from? Well, I found out that it comes from exactly one verse in the Old Testament from Habakkuk. And it comes, uh, it says in Habakkuk, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Okay, let's just think about those two lines for just a second. God doesn't see evil. God doesn't see children being abused. He doesn't see people being treated without equity and justice. He just, what? How does that make sense? God didn't see Hitler. God didn't see what I did in the backseat of a car when I was 16. What happened to that heavenly VCR? I, because when that guy preached that that Sunday, I was definitely panicking over what I had done in the backseat of a car the night before. But when we take this verse in Habakkuk and build an entire theology around it, man, we, we have, we've left the building. We have left it. That We are left without sound theology at all. We cannot build an entire theology on two lines in Habakkuk. But we have. But what those of us that have been taught this and have taught to others, we don't go on to the next verse. It says, your eyes are too evil, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up the more righteous than themselves? In other words, God, you can't look on evil, so why do you? God's not saying he doesn't see it. He sees it. 
So the fact that we think, oh, I'm just, I'm just disgusting, I'm repulsive to God, that's not in the text. Here's the thing. This punitive way of seeing God, it really comes in handy when I want you to do or not do something. I could stand up here today and preach on tithing, for example. I could preach on Malachi 3 that says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I could stand here today and say, Oh, you're sick? Your marriage is falling apart? You can't find a job? Are you tithing? Maybe you need to tithe. Maybe that's why. Maybe God's getting you because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Can I have a show of hands? How many have heard a preacher say that to them before in some form or another? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For real. I could say today that a woman should dress modestly. I... And, and shame you into dressing the way I think you should dress, what all that verse in 1 Timothy means is not flaunting your wealth. It has nothing to do with tight jeans or a low-cut blouse. Colby, my oldest, who just recently moved uh, to Bloomington, thank God, with my grandchild in particular, When he was about 14 or 15, we were in a church that was very strict Baptist, very strict. And so um, they were a King James Version only kind of Baptist. And so uh, not that the King James is bad, but those people tend to take that too far, in my opinion. Anyway, Colby had a girlfriend, and when he, she would go to church with us. And as they were walking into the church, they would hold hands, very innocent, just holding hands. And they would sit together in the pew and they would hold hands. Now, they were not all over each other. They were just holding hands. And so my husband at the time, he was on staff at this church, and the pastor had a private conversation with my husband saying, you really should tell your son to quit holding hands with that girl when they walk into the church and sit in the, sit in the pew. And he was like, why? He was like, well, it just doesn't look good. It doesn't set a good example for the other youth in this church. They don't need to be holding hands, and he's still like, why? Well, it just doesn't look good. So my ex-husband was not impressed with that logic, and he was just like, okay, and he left. He came home and told me, and I was like, oh, yeah, don't even. So that Sunday, that Sunday, that preacher stood up in the pulpit and preached an entire text on 1 Corinthians 7.1. That verse says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I wish I could tell you I was joking, but I was not. I'm sitting on the front row, and this guy starts talking about how it's sinful for, for a, a boy to touch a girl. And in one verse, 45 minutes, our church logo had people holding hands. Come on. Give me a break. So I'm not supposed to hold my husband's hand? I'm not supposed to hold my child's hand? 
What is happening? What is happening? I think a lot of this wrath of God stuff can be used and has been used from people in positions of power to get you to do what they want you to do. Maybe not always. That's been my experience. But here's the thing. After we read that portion in Lamentations about the really bad stuff, about what they do with their children, the next chapter over, the writer of Lamentations says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. They leave that part out. So there's a little bit of a disconnect. Is God this way or is God that way? And I could go on and on with passages in the Old Testament about the wrath of God. Story after story where we see God let loose His wrath and killed enemies and killed people. This uh, fundamentalist pastor who believes in PSA and the wrath of God says this, God's wrath is not a reckless rage, an uncontrollable anger, a senseless fury, or an unjust vengeance. The wrath of God is a precise and controlled response to the belittling of His holiness. Everyone who perishes under the wrath of God in eternity will not be because God lost His temper with them and mistreated them, but because they have belittled His holiness. That's a little scary, right? And if you're a child and you're hearing that, it's even scarier, right? Is God angry with us for belittling His holiness? How do I not belittle His holiness? Tell me that. That's what I wanted to know when I was young. How do I not do that? Because I'm a rule follower. How do I not get into trouble? Tell me where the boundaries go so I don't cross them. Is it okay to mow my grass on Sunday? Okay, it's not? Okay, then I won't. Who gets to decide what belittling God's holiness is? Who gets to decide that? I am going to make time this morning to uh, uh, ask questions and comments. And we are going to do it a little bit differently than we did last week. Uh-oh, we've got... Hang on. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tara. I'm sorry. We have a couple of microphones, and uh, if you have anything that you want to say or ask during this time, I, I really want you to think of this more like a classroom discussion and not so much a sermon, because it's not. And so if you have anything you want to say or you want to ask a question, just raise your hand and Tara will get the microphone to you. Don't let me just like smooth walk right over it if you have something you want to say or ask. Does anyone have anything now? Yeah. When I joined a certain church, I can remember some of the questions were, do you play cards? Do you dance? Do you chew? Do you watch movies? Okay. Yeah. Tim says uh, he was asked, do you play cards? Do you chew? Do you dance? Yeah. We were taught that was unholy, as some of us were. 
A second ago, Melinda, when you said, how do we not belittle his holiness? Um, I thought, you know, immediately kind of what you were talking about, like there's rules to follow. If I check all these boxes, then maybe I won't do that. But the other part of me thought, there's no way I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm human. So yes. where this line is is so incredibly arbitrary. It just made me think, like, there's just no way to, to not. No. We can't. That's right. Also, I'm using the microphones this morning because our people at home could not hear you last week. And there was so much talking going on, I was not able to translate in time. But now they'll be able to hear you. Do you have a question? You can ask it later. <laughs> now, I have a question related to the wrath of God. Isn't it the case that there are other religions during this, this period of time that reflect the very same things? Is it maybe a cultural component? Did you look at my sermon? <laughs> no. That is true. I was, I was part of a group in college that, that strongly believed this. Um, and they had, they had a little bit different of a take, less that God was angry with us, but more that just God was so pure that he couldn't physically accept our sinfulness into his presence. Mm -hmm. um, kind of like if you have a glass of water, you can't drop a drop of arsenic in it, otherwise it becomes poison and it's not water anymore. Huh. Um, I don't necessarily buy this theory. But, sure, um, sure. You know, it's not always this God is angry with us. It, it's sometimes just this, here's this problem and God has to reconcile that somehow. Mm, that's a good point. Thank you for that. Yes. 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 Right here. <laughs> I just think that I speak for myself. Most of Christendom uh, teach that uh, the fear mongering, it's this for that, like a quid pro quo. Yes. You've got to walk this way or the wrath of God. It's And then the fire and brimstone. So it's fear mongering, I feel. Yes. And uh, I think that's where we need to. Yes. Open. I agree. There's this thought that um, some of you have probably heard before, but the thought of uh, God's justice being divine retribution or uh, restorative justice, like retributive justice or restorative justice. And so in the Hebrew scriptures, we are seeing retributive justice. You do this, God's going to do that. You do bad, God's doing bad to you. You do good, God will do, do, do good to you. And that is the way ancient, Israel, ancient Israelites saw God. It makes sense, right? Because, but here's the thing, here's the, here's the rub. You're living your life as good as you can, and still something bad happens to you, and you don't have an answer for it, right? That's where the rub comes in. I don't know if any of you have been, I mentioned this last week, have been watching uh, you know, the Gwen Shamlin thing with the way down diet. Uh, there's a documentary on HBO that is so good. If you, if you have a chance to see it, you should. And this religion taught that, that. They taught retributive justice. And so if things were going wrong in your life, well, you must be sinning somewhere because that shouldn't happen. 
my friend Andy that I've mentioned many, many times, whenever we would all get together as girls, she would always get in a circle, or we would be like praying over a meal at a restaurant. The first thing she would always say is like, okay, who's going to pray? And then she would say, it's got to be whoever's in the will of God. Because if you're not in the will of God, God doesn't hear. Now, she meant that tongue-in-cheek. You have to know Andy. She, did not, she didn't think any of us were in the will of God because we were all pretty messed up. But it was funny. Who's in the will of God? You can pray. But if you're not in the will of God, God's not hearing your prayers. Yeah. Lamentations also says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. But you, O Lord, are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Why would God tell us to forsake wrath if he doesn't? You know, and then we get to the New Testament, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says that the Hebrew Scripture sets this standard of justice and punishment. Take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, the retributive justice. That's the way the world saw it. But Jesus said, no, I'm telling you that's not the way. You've misunderstood it. That's not who God is. Don't fight against the one who is working evil against you. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, you are to turn it off for your left cheek. If someone connives to get your shirt, give him your jacket as well. It's a little bit different, right? So did God have a personality change? No. What if, and I'm just saying what if, what if God was misunderstood by the Israelite people, just like Nanny said? What if... Well, of course God wants us to wipe out the Canaanites. Of course God does. This is what the other cultures do around us. This is what the other gods demand of their people, so that must be what we are supposed to do as well. But what if they missed it? What if that's not what God wanted at all? I would like to talk just a couple of minutes about this term called unwrathing God. I'm going to grab my book real quick. For those of you that are curious about this subject and want to go a little bit deeper, I've, written a, I've read a lot of things about it, but this by far is the best book on it that I have ever read. And the one reason that I think it's the best is because he's very thorough in it, not only that, but it's very easy to read. He doesn't use a lot of high-minded, lofty theological terms. They're just things that we can relate to in our everyday life. And His name is Brad Jersak a more Christ-like God, a beautiful gospel. And he uses this term unwrathing, and this is his definition. It is the interpreting process by which we recognize wrath as a metaphor for God's consent or giving over to the consequences of sin, even when the text describes events as if God were actively provoked into violent retribution. God operates in this world by consent or free will, love as consent. It allows, for, it allows for the reality of sin's cruelty without painting God as a moral monster. Jersak reminds us that God operates in this world by consent, by free will, if you like. And we can see wrath as a metaphor for the consequences of God's consent to our non-consent or free will. God allows us to resist God, and that includes 
all of the fallout that that ensues. God gives us over to the consequences of our bad choices, our sins, our misdeeds, our mistakes. Anybody remember being in high school or college and praying to pass a test that you didn't study for? Lord, all the time. All the time. I can remember praying, God, I know I didn't study for this test at all, but God, I need you to just magically put that information in my brain by osmosis, by something, so I can pass this test. Well, what typically happens in that situation, right? We, we fail or we get a bad grade. <laughs> so does that mean, I mean, what? What? It is the natural consequences of what we failed to do. God didn't intervene. We didn't do our part. Now, on a more serious note, we live in this Me Too era. And for years and years and thousands of years and hundreds of thousands of years, all these things were done in the dark and they were never addressed and there was never opportunity for justice. And so now that we are in this Me Too era, we are seeing these brought to light. Finally, praise be to God. And when this abuser gets exposed in this situation, what is the first thing they usually do besides deny? They blame someone, right? I mean, I have watched interviews with like Harvey Weinstein and, and some of these bigger name people. And they will say, well, it's just unfortunate we live in this Me Too area, era and people are just coming after me now. They're looking for something. Instead of just saying, you know what, I was a jerk. I was not a good person. I was going to say another word, but there are children in here, so I won't say it. Are there consequences for their abuse? Sometimes. And even absent the Me Too era, there's not always consequences for abuse that we see. And that's not okay. But I also think that it is a part that you and I get to play as far as bringing the kingdom of God to earth. That we have a part to play in that. To see that justice happens. To see that people who do these horrible things are brought to justice to speak up and to speak out is that a perfect form of justice no it's not but it's a system that we have now i was talking to someone this week and we were talking about the wrath of god and um, we were both able to confess to one another that we need to believe in the wrath of god for people that do really bad things Right? We don't want to believe that Hitler got away with it. We don't want to believe an abuser gets away with it. We don't want to, right? And I, and I am here before you now telling you I don't know how that works. I don't. I really don't. But I can no longer believe in the wrath of God toward us. Do I believe I can disappoint or let God down? I don't really know. Can I say that to y'all? that I just don't really know. I don't know how it works. But I no longer think of a God who does not, is not all the time mad at me like I used to. What are your thoughts? Um, <clears throat> sorry, clearing my throat. Um, you were talking about 
their understanding of God based on what they knew about the tribes around them mm -hmm. and how they were working in the world. And I think that for me, that's made the most sense as I've, you know, started learning about the Old Testament and reconciling that with what I believe now. And um, I think for me, that was a huge thing, just thinking like, well, it wasn't that God changed. It was that they, in my opinion, yeah. <laughs> that they, they viewed God the way that they knew with yeah. the knowledge that they had at the time. Right. And now we, you know, scientific revolution, all this kind of stuff, right? We yeah. know more now than we did then. And yes. so our perception is different. And maybe even our perception isn't the full picture. Right. But it, it does, to me, it doesn't mean that God changed. It's just, you know, us yeah. that have changed. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Since today is Mother's Day, I have to tell you that the first time I really got an inkling of how God feels about us is when I helped my child for the first time. Yes. Suddenly I realized how God feels about us. Yeah. I don't control everything my child does as they grow up. I guide them. I give them suggestions, but they have free will. And I really don't want God to be controlling me like a puppet and controlling every single yeah. thing I do. Yeah. And... Um, Obviously, my children can disappoint me. Sure. They can also give me great joy. Yes. So, yes, I think God does get disappointed, and he's sad sometimes when we do things we know we shouldn't. Yeah. But to me, that's, how, that's the kind of God I imagine. Yeah. The kind of love I have for my children, that's the kind of love he has for me. That's good. Thank you. I feel like <clears throat> this would get me kicked out of a lot of churches probably. Um, <laughs> A lot of a lot of the language that's used to describe God is is metaphorical, yes. um, and it's it's ascribing. It's instead of saying man is created in the image of God, it's creating God in our own image. Um, so we're yes. we're taking our experiences, our and this kind of to piggyback off what what Libby was saying, we're taking our own experiences, our own understandings, and applying that to God so we can better understand the divine. Um, and I think over time we've changed, right? So those same metaphors, the, that same language doesn't work anymore. Right. And I think a big problem um, in at least the American church is that we take, we take that language and we, we say, no, this is authoritative. You, you have to believe it this way, right. as these people said. But they're just trying their best. And they're, that's right. You know, I, I don't know. I could go on. but I won't. No, that's a good point. That's right. You know, I, we, we read in the New Testament where God tells us to not look like the culture around us and not being formed to the culture around us, but being formed to the renewing of our, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I, as I thought about that this week, I thought, what if not being formed to the culture around us means more than just not mowing on Sunday or not watching Harry Potter or being gay or whatever. What if it's more about this way of thinking, not killing our enemies, even in our thoughts, but forgiving and loving them? What if that's the way of culture, the way of life that Christ and God is calling us to, to renew our minds, to not be vengeful, to not be petty, but to be more forgiving and loving and kind and that is so hard to do. I, I don't have it. I just don't. Um, but it could be that that's what it is. I, 
what if our true calling is not telling people about Jesus and what to wear and what not to wear, but being Jesus in the world? What if that was our true calling? What if it was not about cold calling people by knocking on their doors and saying, have you accepted Jesus? Oh, I know what it was. It was, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? I've asked people that, y'all. I have. What if it's, that's not it? What if we miss that? What if it is to work to bring the kingdom of God here, to ensure, to work toward more justice, more peace, more equity, more love? I do have some book recommendations. I don't know if they're, yeah, the book recommendations are up there too. If you don't do anything else with this, I really do want you to go to YouTube and type in Brad Jersak, The Beautiful Gospel. It's a demonstration that he does with chairs, and you're going to be wild by it. It's absolutely beautiful. You need to watch that this afternoon. So quickly, quickly, just going through PSA. What is it? It's the most widely held doctrine among evangelicals. It builds on Anselm's substitutionary atonement, also called vicarious. Jesus died for the punishment of my sins, making it penal. Jesus died for me instead of me for the punishment of my sins, making it substitutionary. So that's where we get that. And so what is the origin? I was surprised to learn, maybe you will be too, that this does not come about until around Martin Luther, and you can see the date of that. This was not something that the early church fathers believed. Now there's hints of it in some of their writing, but it was, not, it was always as an aside, kind of an afterthought, kind of just bringing that in. But it was not, doc- and it's never been orthodoxy. It's not considered doctrine or orthodoxy. The, any of the meanings of the cross are not. And so, uh, so we see Martin Luther, we see Calvin, we see John Wesley. What does it mean? For Luther, the study of Romans led him to believe that we are only saved by faith, not through works. Um, Luther was not a systematic theologian. He was more concerned with the way theology should be done. He was a big picture kind of guy, a university professor who taught the Bible. He was trying to make the Bible make sense in the world he lived in. His focus would be on sin, on the need to humble ourselves and the inability to justify ourselves. Luther introduced the idea of punishment, God's wrath turned toward humanity for our sins, that someone must be punished for it. God took out his punishment on Jesus on the cross. He used Anselm's idea of satisfaction and added retributive justice to it. Now Calvin was the one to actually sit down and write the whole thing out. So I know Luther gets a lot of credit. It really is more Calvin than it is Luther. He was the French reformer who organized a systematic way of reading Luther's ideas on PSA. It would become the dominant view of seeing the cross among the Puritans who settled in New England, our sins must be atoned for to appease an angry God, and the idea of tulip, which is Calvinism, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. That's a lot I know that I just threw at you, uh, but we're not going to be able to get into that day. Maybe we can do it some other time. Uh, there are lots of scriptures that will prop this theory up. There's lots. They're there. And so it just depends on how you interpret them and read them. I'm going to be very honest with you and tell you this. I don't want them to mean that. I don't. Now, over time and over many years of study, I don't think they mean that. But I have to tell you right on the outset, I don't want them to mean that. Because I want it to be better than that. I want it to be more beautiful than that. 
What is the argument against PSA? The forgiveness of sins does not always require an appeasement of God's wrath. We see over and over and over in the New Testament where Jesus is walking around forgiving people. Well, he ain't been to the cross yet. God's wrath hasn't been satisfied yet. And yet Jesus will tell people, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. What's up with that? 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We needed to be reconciled to God, not God to us. The human family needs transformation, not God. God is not mad at you. God has never been mad at you. God is always running toward you. God doesn't turn God's face away. God is running toward you. You are not hideous to God. You are not a worm. You are not repulsive. God is always running. Can I give you a couple of examples? Adam and Eve, they sin. What do they do? They hide. What does God do? God goes to them. He goes to them. Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother. What does God do? God goes to Cain. Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael. They decide to do things their own way. I'm going to get my handmaiden pregnant so I can have my legitimate heir. What does God do? Does God turn away and say, oh, you've messed up now. Have at it. It's all going to be a mess. No, God goes to them. God goes to Abraham and he says, no, I'm still going to make this work. And he goes to Ishmael and says, I'm going to take care of you. David and Bathsheba. David really messed up, committed sexual assault. Any way you slice it, sexual assault. What does God do? Does God turn his face away and say, no, David, you were repulsive to me. I'm done with you. No, he doesn't. God sends Nathan to David and says, hey, dude, this is you. This is what you have done. And God gives David the chance to turn and make different choices, and we get Solomon out of it. Zacchaeus. What does God do? God, through his son Jesus, goes to Zacchaeus. He was the tax collector. He was reviled. He was hated by all of his people. And yet Jesus goes to him and says, Zacchaeus, what are you doing? God always runs toward us. God is not running away from us because we're hideous. God is always running to us, toward us. That's God's love for us. The kaleidoscopic cross, that's why I gave you a kaleidoscope. There's so many colors on all of these theories. And there's beauty in all of them. And I believe that we can't make one doctrine out of the cross because the texts just don't back it up. But there's beauty in all of these theories. There's something in all of these theories that are good. I'm not really sure what's good about penal substitutionary atonement, but maybe I'll get there one day. I don't see it now. But in all the other ones, there's something there that's of value and of beauty that we can see and grab on to. But this is the one thing I do know. Without question, without doubt, God loves you. God always has. God is for you. God is on your side.